Whether it was used during the height of the pandemic or now because of its convenience, telehealth has become a mainstay in healthcare. The Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, an agency of the Health and Human Services Department, is trying to spread the word about its resources available to help people understand telehealth and the implications of using it. For more, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with the director for the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth at HRSA, Heather Damaris. So across the board, we saw telehealth increase um, by far because that's how everybody needed to access their care for the most part. But of all those telehealth services, behavioral telehealth services were the ones that were tapped into the most. And so you can find a lot of that information on telehealth.hhs.gov on how you can get uh, a telebehavioral health appointment and what you could do to prep for it. But looking at what types of behavioral health care you can get, it really varies. Um, A lot of people experience anxiety and depression throughout the pandemic. So um, you can get services for that and therapy for that. You can also get mental health screening and even addiction counseling. We did see that there was a 50% increase in psychiatric appointments through telebehavioral health, as well as substance use treatment through telebehavioral health um, was at about 30% throughout the pandemic. So this continues to be a really great resource um, for people, um, even as uh, we're going through going back to the doctor in person and doing telehealth visits, it's sort of like an integrated standard of care where you can do either telehealth or in person. And other than spreading the word, doing interviews like this one, uh, what else is HRSA doing to help people get connected via telehealth? Um, I'm sure there have been some technical hiccups that you all are also in the works of fixing for most people who uh, aren't as savvy as others. Uh, what, What can you tell me about that? Sure. Well, um, the Department of Health and Human Services and the Health Resources and Services Administration has a website, telehealth.hhs.gov. It has information for patients around a lot of different ways they can use telehealth and access telehealth. And there's also a door for providers where um, if there's anyone in your audience that does provide health care, it has um, tip sheets and best practice guides across a variety of different areas if they're looking to incorporate telehealth into their practice. And that includes chronic conditions, behavioral health, direct consumer care. And for those um, in your audience who speak Spanish, we really are trying to reach everybody and sharing this information. So the whole entire website is translated in Spanish as well. And for Medicare and Medicaid recipients, uh, can you just expand a little bit about how telehealth has changed uh, the experience for those folks? And since we said that telehealth is here to say making telehealth a permanent fixture for Medicare, I imagine, is going to be a big undertaking. That's a great, important point. And we have all used telehealth and there have been so many flexibilities that allowed that to take place over the pandemic. And what we see now is um, all of that data, all of the experiences that have taken place throughout the pandemic, we're looking at it and we've already seen that within uh, the Department of Health and Human Services at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they're taking that information and they're making changes. So, um, for example, with telebehavioral health care, you can now, as a provider, get reimbursed 
um, for telebehavioral health services, not just during the pandemic, but that they made that a permanent Medicare reimbursement now. And even more important, I think, um, is for people who don't have access to broadband as a patient and they're looking to get a telebehavioral health appointment, they're able to reimburse in Medicare the provider if the provider just needs to use a telephone. So if a patient can't do the video chat, like we would all usually prefer to see people in person or via a video chat, um, you can also have that appointment over the phone and the doctor can still get reimbursed for it. So I think CMS is making changes to um, Medicare permanently, and that's one example of what they've done to take that data and then make changes moving forward. So I imagine behavioral health has seen a large increase in its use in telehealth. Is that the biggest area where you all have seen uh, telehealth patients use it the most? Yeah, throughout all the telehealth services, telebehavioral health is the most utilized service. And actually on telehealth.hhs.gov, that is the most viewed portion of the website. And it's really great to see because it really has been such a, um, an emotional experience for many of us. Um, throughout the pandemic, there's been a lot of changes and to see people tapping in to therapy services to help their own mental health needs is really great. And being able to provide that within the comfort of their own home, possibly even without the stigma of going into an office to get that therapy service, it really helps improve access to care and improve health equity. Yeah, on that health equity point, are, are we kind of on the precipice of seeing a lot of health equity or seeing, I guess, a lot of health inequity uh, be erased almost by this advent of telehealth? And maybe it could be one of the only positive aspects to come out of the p- uh, pandemic itself. Well, telehealth, in my opinion, is a silver lining of the pandemic. We've seen a way to increase access to telehealth services and just healthcare services more broadly. Um, I will say that the foundation of telehealth services is access to high-speed internet or broadband. If you don't have that, you really can't do those video chats that I was talking about in order to um, have a better experience um, in your telehealth appointment. Um, And that's why I want to mention on telehealth.hhs.gov, Um, Through the Affordable Connectivity Program, there is information about how people who can't afford um, high-speed internet access like broadband services um, can qualify for the Affordable Connectivity Program to get free monthly broadband service if they already receive um, other federal benefits like um, the SNAP program or the WIP program, uh, even if they receive a Pell Grant, there's a variety of different federal benefits. If they already receive them, they would automatically um, qualify for the Affordable Connectivity Program. So I really would encourage folks um, to bridge that that gap um, in broadband access by going to telehealth.hhs.gov to learn a little bit more about that program because it will improve that telehealth experience if they need to have it. Yeah, did you ever in your career as a uh, health admini- in health administration, uh, did you see yourself having to be so technical nowadays with, with having to uh, increase the amount of people who have access to broadband as your number one task nowadays? Well, HHS really hasn't received any funding to work on broadband, right, for um, 
for telehealth services uh, until we ended up looking at rural communities and their bandwidth and broadband throughout the pandemic. And and that really is um, one of the things that's difficult for rural communities, making sure they have access to to some type of high-speed internet, whether it's broadband or um, something called low-Earth orbiting satellites, to your point about learning a lot of technology I didn't otherwise know before. Um, But I do think that it's a great opportunity um, for us to also highlight in urban areas, sometimes there is access to broadband, but it's not affordable. And so there's there's a little bit of uh, an equity gap, both in geographic as well as affordability um, needs when it comes to access to broadband. I would just um, encourage folks to go to telehealth.hhs.gov. As the pandemic evolves and the resources around telehealth evolve, that is where patients and providers can find the latest information about telehealth as it changes. And I just really want to thank you for your time to highlight this really important issue, especially around behavioral health. Heather Damaris is Director of the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth at the Health Resources and Services Administration. Speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, 
um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say, I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, 
advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.